Well, good morning. We will be covering a lot today. So if you're new here today, please come back. <laughs> At the beginning of each book of the scripture, we're just gonna take a little bit of time unpacking this. And my reason for that, and I'm pretty big into this, is because it's vitally important, I think, for you to get the big picture of scripture. Too many times we just study each of the 66 books kind of at a separate format. We don't really see that there's a big picture going on here. So you're gonna feel by the end of today that you thought that you came for a drink of uh, water from the faucet, only realizing that you actually went to a fire hydrant. So I can send you all these notes too. So if you're interested, email me and not a problem. So I just wanna go before we dive into the text to really give you a bigger picture of what's going on. So appreciate the team in back that have put together some good slides here. So hopefully we'll kind of go straight into it. Um, first off, we'll see this. You think I'm teaching you Ezra. It's probably going to be a combination of Ezra and Nehemiah. And there's reasons for that. Let's talk first canonization. Excellent. You've heard that term canon before. It's not, you may have studied a little bit of scripture and you say, well, is something in the canon or not? And that it has nothing to do with warfare. It's, it's this word in Latin, it means the canon was a measuring rod. And with any part of a book that people said, this should be scripture, they had to make sure it fit the measuring rod. It had to be inspired by God, breathed out by God. Each of these 66 books, that is actually one book, um, it had to be recognized as God breathed. Now, be careful here. I'm not saying it had to be determined. We don't determine what God's word is. We don't get to make that choice. We recognize for what it already is. So, wondering about this canonization of scripture, these two, we could go into that further, but for lack of time, we will not. Uh, note this, there's three different divisions of the Old Testament. There's the law, the prophets. This, this part is the writings. Um, the early Hebrew copyists seem to have combined Ezra with Nehemiah. They put it together. And you go, why did they do that? Well, it may have originally been that way, uh, as we'll see. Um, Nehemiah continues the story of the history of Ezra. So perhaps it originally was one book. Uh, not only that, the Jews were kind of interesting about this. Uh, they have 22 letters in the Jewish alphabet. We have 26 in the English. And they wanted the letters, the number of letters of the Old Testament to correspond with the number of Old Testament books, which is 22. Now, some of you little kids are out there going, no, 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 no. It's 39. Well, it is 39, but it's 39 how we put it together. You see... If you're wondering, where do we get our current number of 39 Old Testament books? It's actually from the time of the Septuagint. And now we're in the deep waters, so y'all hang tight with me here. Septuagint was, is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. You had a problem by the time you get to the third century BC, and that is most Hebrews don't speak Hebrew anymore. They speak Aramaic, or they speak Greek. And so they needed to translate the Hebrew scriptures into what the people could read. And so you had certain books like Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles that were really not meant to be split. If you ever get to the, the end of 1 Kings and then you read the very next chapter, which is 2 Kings 1, you might go, 
that's a strange break, and it is. Um, nevertheless, here's the way it works. The scrolls were so big at that time. Remember, they had scrolls. They didn't, they didn't have the bound, what we have. And they got so big that they decided to split those books, and certainly there's nothing wrong with doing that. It's not an inspired issue. Um, so point being is that some of these books were meant to be split. Uh, maybe Ezra and Nehemiah were meant to be two books. Uh, the Minor Prophets, meant to be several books, as we have it in the English, but uh, in the Hebrew, it's a little bit different. That's about as deep as we'll get in the weeds for that, so you could just relax now. The author is, we know the author is the Holy Spirit, but it was written by the pen of Ezra. He wrote both books, or maybe Nehemiah wrote the book of Nehemiah. Y'all are tracking beautifully, wonderful. The title... Uh, Ezra, it's, it's a shortened version of Azariah. So really, Ezra is his nickname. His full name is Azariah. I don't know if I've met an Azariah or an Ezra here or a Nehemiah, but those are solid names to consider. Uh, Ezra means um, he's the main char character in chapters 7 through 10. His name means the Lord has helped or the Lord helps. A great name for teenage boys, I would say because the Lord certainly needs to help them. Nehemiah is the Lord has comforted, or the Lord comforts. So those are both solid names. Uh, why did Israel and Judah have to go into captivity? And now for some of you, we automatically have a problem, because you say, I thought it was just Israel. And now I'm scratching my head going, how far shall we go back today? Well, I'll suffice it to say this. Um, we know the story of King Saul. The people demanded a king. You should note this. It was always God's plan to give the nation a king, always. But that was not the king. Um, that's the king the people demanded, and that's the one they got, King Saul. But then later God said, no, I've, I've got a man in mind, the man after God's own heart, named David. King Saul is king of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And then we've got David, who becomes king. And, uh, and then we have Solomon. Solomon, for the wisest man on the earth, becomes a fool at the end of his life. Uh, and so what God says is, I'm going to rip the kingdom, but I'm not going to do it in your life. I'm going to do it in your son's life. And so from that point on, in 931 BC, you've got a split in the kingdom. From here on out, the upper tribes are known as Israel, and the lower tribes, which is Judah and Benjamin, were known simply as Judah, Okay. From that point on, you had kind of two separate entities that would continue on from here on out. Now we've got Israel and Judah at this time period. Why did they have to go into captivity? Well, ultimately, they were disobedient to the word of God. Uh, the prophets had been warning for generations of one particular sin. I bet you know what it is. It's idolatry. Idolatry. They were committing many sins, but in particular, they, they wanted their own way. Certainly, we can relate to that. And yet the Lord, its note, is, is in control at all times, at all times, in all places. Amos 3, 6, is a trumpet blown into a city unless the city is being attacked. Uh, and so it's basically, he's saying, if the Lord is going to allow this nation to be taken over, it's going to be for their good, and it's going to be for God's glory. We see the northern kingdoms of Israel goes to Assyria, the Assyrians attack them in 722 BC, and Israel is eradicated. They're taken out of the land, by and large. 
Whereas Babylon, great, takes Judah in three different times in 605, 597, 586 BC. So you have no kingdom of Israel or Judah at this point for time. Now, let me give you a little background of the captivity of Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. As I mentioned, Israel, the northern kingdom, is destroyed by the Assyrians in 722 BC. They really never returned. By and large, they assimilated with the other peoples of, the, of Assyria and Babylonia and a lot of others. But then we have Judah, the southern kingdom, sent to Babylon. Now, if you have your scriptures, let me show you something. Uh, Jeremiah 29, go ahead and go there, and I will tell you something that you may have never noted before. Jeremiah 29, I bet many times you've used these verses to encourage you, and rightfully so. Jeremiah 29, verse 11 through 13. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come to me and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Isn't that encouraging to know that the Lord knows the plans he has for you? They're for your good and not evil. But you know what? Here's where we miss it. What's the context? Verse 10, let me show you the context. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Oh, so the context is God says, I'm sending you all away for 70 years. You're going into captivity. And I know the plans I have for you. And now you go, I don't know if I like that verse as much now. <laughs> no, you should. You should, because the Lord is doing his work in your life, and he's making you like the sun, and it's painful. Let's be honest. Amen. There you go. So, continuing on, thus begins the 70 year, and you're like, what's, why 70 years? Well, the people of Israel had never let the ground lie fallow. God so promised when they came to the promised land that basically after six years, I'm gonna give you such a crop that you don't even need to, uh, you don't even need to seed the ground or harvest on the seventh year. I will provide for you. What is God doing? The same thing he does with us. He's showing us, you need to trust me. I've got you here. What did Israel do? We're gonna keep seeding and harvesting every year. For 490 years, they did it. And so God said, you know, you kinda owe me that year. And so literally, it works out in the math that 70 years, they would let the ground lie fallow, and then God would bring his people back. Uh, people often wonder, when did that 70-year time frame begin? Well, there's a debate, and I don't have a good answer for you, but you can study it on your own. Maybe it began in 605 BC with the first deportation by Babylon, and it ended in 538 BC with Cyrus' proclamation. And that was 67 years, and so maybe God in his grace uh, gave them that. Or maybe the 70 years began in 586 BC with the destruction of Solomon's temple by the Babylonians to 516 BC when the second temple would be rebuilt. 
giving you a lot of figures here. You're hanging in there. What happened to the people of Judah? These are the people of God. Can I give you a few snapshots? Not always pleasant. King Zedekiah is the first one we should look at. The word of God is fulfilled in his life, and we're going to see this over and over in Ezra and Nehemiah. The Lord keeps his word. So in Jeremiah 32, 1 through 5, he was prophesied, Zedekiah, you're going to go to Babylon. Zedekiah didn't believe it, but it's very clear in the text. But in Ezekiel 12, verse 8 through 13, he says, you'll never see it. And so Zedekiah had to be thinking, it's not even true. I mean, they're conflicting prophecies. No, they're not conflicting prophecies. Here's the way it happened. Zedekiah, on the day he was captured, this is horrible, but they took his sons and they killed him in front of him. And then at that very moment, they took out his eyes. It pierced his eyes. So the last thing that he would ever see was his son's deaths. How horrible. And then at that point, he would be taken to Babylon where he would never see it. Point being is that we don't need to back away from Scripture because that's kind of disturbing. No, we lean into it because we trust the Lord is doing his work and we take God's command seriously and his warnings. How about, how about the poor Jews, the poor Jews that were left in the land? They were commanded to stay in Judah with Jeremiah and you would think they would learn, like we've been kind of taken over three times by the Babylonians. We should listen to God this time. They don't. They instead leave for Egypt and they take Jeremiah with them. Uh, how about there's 10,000 richer Jews? That these were, these were kind of the uh, upper class the, um, of Echelon. These people were royalty. They were taken into Babylon. Uh, Daniel's a good example in 605 B.C. Ezekiel, the prophet, who was a priest, 597 B.C. You also had the Jews that were in Babylon. Where, what are they commanded to do? They're commanded to, to trust the Lord. Go back to Jeremiah 29, and I'll show you what God commands them to do. Jeremiah 29, verse 4 through 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. What is God telling them to do? He's telling us the same thing in trials. You just need to submit to me right now. I know what I'm doing and you need to flourish where I've called you to be right now. 1 Corinthians 9 talks about uh, that we should remain in the situation the Lord has called us. Has God called you to singlehood? Stay put. If the Lord should bring along a spouse, that's fine. Has the Lord called you to marriage? Do not break that off. Why? Because the Lord has called you to that particular position in life. And your job is to get under it. And not just to survive, dare I say it, but to thrive. And you say, I cannot thrive in this situation. I would say, you're wrong. Because you have the Holy Spirit inside you, you can thrive. But are you willing to submit to it? Many of the Jews did. Many of them did not. We see here a couple of more points, what happened to the people of Judah. God protected his own, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Faithful teenagers. 
If you are wondering today, is there any way could I raise children in this country these days? It's becoming so wicked. Well, I will tell you the most godly teenagers in scripture are raised in wickedness. Saying, be careful. I'm not saying just fling your kids out there. But think about it. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, Joseph, godly men that the Lord saw fit to take care of them and they trusted the Lord. Uh, And finally, God destroys the destroyers of his people. Babylon destroyed Judah and now God is gonna destroy Babylon through the hand of Medo-Persia. How the pagan nations dealt with their conquered peoples. Man, y'all haven't missed a beat here, this is great. They dealt with their conquered peoples very differently. Uh, Assyria deports their natives of, of Judah, or rather Israel, and they move other peoples in to mix with the native population. And now you're starting to think, that sounds familiar. Have you heard a group of people called the Samaritans before? Of course you have. This is what the Assyrians would do, is they would bring in other peoples and then mix them all up so that they would have basically no national identity. And by the time of the New Testament, we see that Jesus is, is sending his apostles out to preach the gospel to the Samaritans. But the Jews hated him. Um, continuing on, Babylon, what does Babylon do? They deport their rich natives of Judah, and they leave the poor to run the country. They thought, that was the be- they, they thought you should take the best and the brightest, and you basically make them Babylonian. Didn't happen to certain Jews. And then finally, you've got Persia. Persia does something very different. They restore the people to their native lands and religions. And the reason why they did that is to keep them from rebelling. They thought that was most importantly, and it actually worked probably the best of the three empires by just sending them back, all right? Uh, One other thing that I didn't list on here, it's important to note, if you've ever wondered, and maybe the geekish side of me appreciates this, uh, are they called Hebrews? Are they called... Israelites, are they called Jews? Like, which is it? At this point, for the first time, they are called Jews. And you say, why? Because primarily, they are the tribe of Judah. And so you just shorten that, and then from here on out, they're called Jews. They're not called Israelites. To Even to this day, um, people that are in America that are Israelite, they, we call them Jewish. Timeline and characters. Let me give you some timeline, and then we'll go into themes, and then we'll go straight into the text. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah, this twin book here, it spans a period of 92 years of history. And what we're going to see, y'all, in the next, oh, I don't know, year, <laughs> we're going to see we're going to see three returns and three rebuilds. Three returns back from Babylon and three rebuilds. The first one is going to be in 538 to 515 BC. The first return is going to be from a guy named Zerubbabel and he rebuilds the temple. Uh, We have a couple of guys also listed called Haggai and Zechariah. And the reason why Haggai, these two guys are prophets, and Haggai is gonna say, look at y'all, you're living in paneled houses while the temple foundation, that's all there is. Y'all aren't taking care of God's business. You're basically paneling your homes at this point. I'm so glad that doesn't apply to any of us in here, right? You're busy taking care of yourself and the Lord's calling you, hey, be with my people, love my people, serve my people. 
So that's what happens. They eventually rebuild the temple. We also have another date there, kind of as a side note, 482 to 473 BC. That's the events of Esther. So Esther actually occurs chronologically before Ezra and Nehemiah. I know it's different in our scriptures, but it actually occurs right before. Uh, in 458 BC, you have the second return. Ezra rebuilds the people. How does he rebuild them? With the law or the word of God. That's what he uses. Of course, that's what we should use as well. Uh, this happens 80 years after the first return. And then finally, 445 to 420 BC, we have the third return where Nehemiah rebuilds the walls. So just think, Zerubbabel temple, Ezra law, or the people, and Nehemiah the walls. And at this point, you have Malachi uh, who tells them that before the great and terrible day of the Lord, I'm gonna send somebody. It's not Jesus. He's gonna say, I'm gonna send Elijah. And so we would take that and rightly so, because Jesus takes it this way, is John the Baptist. So then we've got our 400 silent years. They're not really silent, but there's no prophetical uh, word from the Lord. And then in the fullness of time, Jesus comes. So I'm giving you large sections of history, and you're hanging in there quite well. Um, finally, there's, there's the same progression in all three returns. There's a call to return from the Lord by the Persian crown, there's a, secondly, a constant opposition. And number three, there's an overcoming the opposition with the Lord's help. Six themes. You don't have to know them for the test. Uh, the last one's gonna be most important. But these are, and as I thought through these themes, I thought, listen, folks, that's true back then, and it's true of today as well. These are themes of Scripture that you and I should remember. You could even have six points of application today, I think. Listen to these. Number one, God's plan of redemption comes through these people. They are the legitimate heirs of Israel. And I would look at us today and I said, you folks are the legitimate heirs of the seed of Abraham. I do see a future for Israel, the ethnic peoples of Israel. But at the same time, we would also say that if people want to know what, what is the God of Israel, how do I know the Lord? They're gonna look to us, Right? Wow, what an honor the Lord has bestowed upon us. And these people, not the Israelites that were taken over by Assyria, but these people that are returning to the Lord God, these people are legitimate heirs. Number two, it's a call to separate from pagan practices and peoples. And certainly that's true today, slightly different for us. Uh, we are totally called to separate from pagan practices, but what are we supposed to do with pagan peoples? In the New Testament, we draw near to them, not becoming best friends and this person is my bosom buddy, but certainly we go to them with the idea that I wanna love this person and do what? Give them the gospel. I need to show them where bread is because I was saved, so I'm gonna share with them. Number three, the Bible is the only book by which to live. I know some of you go, amen, of course, but I can't tell you the number of times I've gotten this question. Jeff, I'm really looking for a good book on marriage. Or, or I get, you know, raising kids. I'm looking for a great book on raising kids. Folks, we have a great book on marriage. We have a great book on raising kids. 
Now, not every verse deals with that topic, those particular topics, but they're in there. I mean, kids, have you read the book of Proverbs? Have you seen Ephesians for marriage? You've got Ephesians 5. You've got Colossians 3, 1 Peter 3. You've got, I mean, all throughout, the picture of the gospel is the picture of marriage. Christ loving his church, the church submitting to her head. It's there. I'm not discounting other books. Don't misquote me. I don't want to get your emails. <laughs> but the Bible is the book. It's the only one written by God. Go there first. Okay, that's becoming a sermon within a sermon. Let's continue. Number four, worship is to be done for the Lord and according to his word. One thing that you'll see Moy and the rest of the group up here is we follow what is called the regulative principle regarding our worship. There's reasons why we don't have dancing bears up here on Sundays. It's because we go, what does the Bible teach about worship? Well, it's focused on the word of God. And we sing. And there's times that we may even confess and there's prayer. These things take place. The reason why is because the Bible lines these out, and that's the way we want to do things. And finally, number six, the main theme, if I could give you a main theme of Ezra and Nehemiah, is the Lord keeps his word. And he keeps his word as he, as he rebuilds the temple, the people, and the wall. And what you're going to see is the results of that will be proper worship and, and right living. It's going to be a beautiful thing, and you're going to see it as a matter of fact, it'll be shocking to you as you read these stories of these Israelites that have been so rebellious through the years and God gives them incredible grace and they follow him. And then there's times they don't. They look a lot like us, actually. We've, we've got a couple of looming questions at hand, even as we dive straight into the text. Is there any hope of restoration for the Davidic kingdom? You know they had to be thinking that in the golden age of David and Solomon. Is there any hope? Well, yes, there is. And number two, could the Jews actually resume their role in seeking to be a light to the nations? Unlike us today, we are supposed to go. They were told to stay. So the rest of the world look at the Jewish people and go, there's something different about them. What is it? And they would be drawn to the God of Israel. We are called to go. But could they still be a light to the nations? Uh, Eric Kidner puts it this way. To describe this time, it was a death to make way for a rebirth. We're talking a rebirth, folks. A millennium before this, Israel had been transplanted to Egypt to emerge no longer a family but a nation. Now her long night in Babylon was to mark another turning point so that she emerged no longer a kingdom but a little flock. And we'll see that little flock start to come out here very soon. Now, after an incredibly long introduction, we're going to go into the text for a few minutes, not too long. We're going to see the Lord keeps his word. Take a look. Chapter 1, verse 1. This is the word of God. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. So the first year was 539 B.C. This probably occurred in 538, first full year. And you may say, well, who is Cyrus? And I'm glad you asked. This is Cyrus II. Uh, his father was Cambyses. He was the, he was the uh, son of Astyagus of uh, Media. If you were able, if you wanted to plan a trick, 
trip to Iran this year and you wanted to see the ancient tomb of Cyrus, it's still there. It is in Iran. Uh, here we have also something called the Cyrus Cylinder. I think we have that. Cyrus Cylinder. That's, there it is. It's not that big. It's actually about this size. And what this is, this is, can you imagine being an archaeologist at this point? The Cyrus Cylinder was uh, somehow buried in 539 BC, and the clay cylinder was discovered in 1879 by British archaeologist Rassam in the Marduk Temple in the ruins of Babylon. It's now in the British Museum in London. And what this Cyrus Cylinder, it described him taking over the nations of the world, in particular, Babylon. Remember, don't get mixed up. Judah's been taken over by Babylon for 70 years, and now God is going to punish Babylon, and he's going to use another nation called Medo-Persia. You go, why the Medo? Well, it's kind of a combination of two different peoples. The Medes, which m many people think the Medes are modern-day Kurds. That's probably, uh, that may be the case. Persians are modern-day Iranians. Okay, And so they come together and they take on Babylon. Now, the story behind this is so fascinating. I think it is. So stay with me. Babylon has not been taken over for a thousand years. I mean, folks, just being honest, if you haven't been taken over for a thousand years, you're enjoying the lazy river of life. You're not worried about anything. And neither was Belshazzar in uh, Daniel chapter five. And he has brought all the goblets from Judah, and he brought them out of the, uh, the storehouses, and they're drinking, and they're cheering to their gods. And then all of a sudden, if you were to look at Belshazzar right now, his face grew white, and his knees started literally knocking, and his, basically his legs were going away as he hears a sound in the back of the auditorium, and he hears, and he looks at a human hand by itself that's scraping the walls and is writing something, and he's scared to death, and everything stops. And when he looks up as he sees these Aramaic words, mene, mene, tiko, farsen, and he has no idea what he's looking at, but he knows it's a human hand, and it's writing on the wall. <sighs> that scares me just thinking about it. Well, what's going on? Well, at that particular time frame, I can tell you this, Cyrus and the Persian army are outside their gates, but they're not, Babylonians aren't worried about anything. The reason why is they haven't been conquered in a thousand years. And number two, because they have these incredibly large walls and a moat that goes inside of one of these walls, no one's going to conquer them. They know that, except for God thinks differently. And what Cyrus has done Unbeknownst to Belshazzar, Cyrus has rerouted the waters of this moat to an ancient lake just north of the city. And it happened, he was able to do it in a very short time. So that on October 13th, 539 BC, he just walks into the city with the Persian army. Belshazzar doesn't know that. So they don't know any of this. And so, but they know the Persians are outside their city gates, but they're not worried. Well, Belshazzar is scared to death, literally, and they can't get an answer for anybody because the, per, the rather the Aramaic words, mini, mini, it just means, um, it, the idea is numbered. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. And you go, that doesn't make any sense. Well, what happens is God's gonna use 81-year-old 
Daniel to step forward and tell them exactly what this means. Numbered, numbered. Things are written twice in the Bible. You need to pay extra close attention. The, your reign is done, is what he's saying. And not only that, it's been weighed and it's been found wanting. Daniel will tell him, your grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, basically turned into an animal. And he, he roamed the earth and he was eating and his nails grew long and his hair grew long. I gave you mercy and you didn't catch that. And so now, look, you're doing just as pagan things as he did beforehand. And so God says, your, your kingdom is weighed and it's been divided, farsen. Actually, it's strange, that word farsen, it sounds like Persian and it's meant to because you're gonna be taken over. We know for a fact that they, he and his wife were killed that night. The Persians came in and they took over and Babylon was done. Note this, it says in verse one, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. What is the word of Jeremiah? Jeremiah 29, 10. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Jeremiah 25, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation for their iniquity. And he does. So that's why you see in Daniel chapter nine, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of God to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem. To put it like this, is Daniel is praying basically when Cyrus is about to come in. And he's like, Lord, it's been 70 years. You promised. And you know what God does with promises? He keeps them, everyone. So we see the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus and he proclaimed throughout the whole kingdom. Proverbs 21, one says the hearts the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. So he stirs up their heart. And as a matter of fact, this is all prophesied 200 years beforehand. God even uses the name Cyrus. Isaiah 44, 28, the Lord says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill my purpose. Isaiah 45, 13, Cyrus, he will build my city and set my exiles free. So he sends word out to all of uh, Persia, Persian Empire, which is roughly the size of the continental United States. And what does he say? Verse two through four. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of heaven. Well, Cyrus is a believer. No, he's not. And I'll explain why in just a moment. But that phrase, the Lord, it says the God of heaven, that was first used by Abraham in Genesis 24. It's used nine times in Ezra. It's used once in Jonah as he's speaking to the other sailors. The God of heaven is the Lord. Um, it's interesting, this term, it's actually a Persian title uh, and it could be used to refer not to the true God of heaven but to a pagan God in their religion. And the name of that pagan god is Ahura Mazda. And some of you are going, did you say Mazda? I drive a Mazda. 
Well, the Mazda is a Japanese car company. It's named after the founder Matsuda that is pronounced Mazda in Japanese. I'm not telling you to turn your car in, to be clear. But uh, the point of it is, is it, uh, that's the name. Uh, it's Mazda. And they, they named it after the company's founder, but also after a Persian god as well. But that same term, strangely enough, can be used to describe the true God of heaven. It makes you wonder if maybe Daniel helped write this with Cyrus. He may have. He may have said, use this terminology, because we Hebrews use this to describe our true God to the pagan world. He's the God of heaven. Why is that shocking? Because all the other nations believe their gods were in charge of different areas like Jerusalem or Persia or Primarily, it's different cities or neighborhoods. Um, he's telling them four things. He's saying, the Lord has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. That's true. He says, the temple is ordered to be reconstructed. Number three, all the Lord's people, meaning the Jews, are free to return if they wish. And number four, those who remain are to financially support the work of the Jews who return. What's, what's fascinating about this is that Cyrus' name is prophesied 200 years before his name even comes about. And by the way, and that's why in some liberal commentators, when they're reading Isaiah, when they're writing about Isaiah, they will say there's two Isaiahs, not one. Why would they say two Isaiahs? Well, there has to be two Isaiahs because they're writing about something that hasn't happened for 200 years. And we would say, duh, that's, that's what prophets do. And so there's one Isaiah. Um, did Cyrus know about Isaiah's prophecies about himself? You can't help but wonder, did he know about it? Josephus, one of the commentators, rather one of the historians of the first century said he may have. We don't really know. But if you're a king back at that time, you listened to Egyptian oracles or Greek oracles or Jewish oracles, he may have. So he encourages them to go, and he encourages them to go to the God that is in Jerusalem. Well, you make it sound like, Jeff, that he's a believer. No, uh, he's not. And the reason why is I think Isaiah 44 really encapsulates it for us. Verse 28 through chapter 45, verse 7. I won't list the whole thing, but just certain parts. He says about Cyrus, he's my shepherd. He shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, it shall be rebuilt, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Note what he says, though. I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. He says, I am the Lord. There is no other besides me. There is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. So he's making it clear, I know you. You don't know me. You know the most wonderful thing about being a believer is you know God. If you're an unbeliever today, God knows you. You need to know this, but you don't know him. And that's all the difference in the world. So we have the Cyrus Cylinder. It was found in 1879. We've seen a picture of it. It records the capture of Babylon, but what's interesting is that he gives all the credit to Marduk, which was a Babylonian god. He doesn't give credit to the Lord. So we see even in history, Cyrus was not, a, I don't think we will see him in heaven um, and he says the God in Jerusalem. Once again, ancients believed the gods were limited to the nation's boundary. So we see Naaman, the Syrian general. God heals him of his leprosy. What does he want to take with him? 
I want some dirt that I can take back with me to, uh, to my country and we could worship the Lord there. Some Texans do that kind of thing. If they know their child's gonna be born in Oklahoma, we gotta get some Texas dirt and, and bring it up there. I've heard of this before. So he tells them to all go. And so it's interesting, I'll say this, is that he's not just calling the Jews from Babylon to go back. He's saying from all of Persia. Why do I say that? Because there were a lot of Jews, or not Jews, but Israelites taken over by Assyria that were still living there. He says, go home, go home. And this is exactly what the Lord calls them to do as well, as we'll see. So finally, he says this. He says, let the men of that place support him. Silver, gold, goods, cattle, free will offerings. So he, this is, in essence, folks, to the average Jew, this is the second exodus. The first exodus, they're sent out of Egypt. And what does God tell the, them to do, to ask the Egyptians? Give us money. Give us food. Give us gold. And God predisposes the Egyptians to say, okay, here you go. Let's hand that off. And this is yours. And, and God says, basically, this, the, by me doing this, we're going to destroy Egypt, in essence. We're going to take all their goods and give it to Israel. And that's what happened. God's doing it a second time. He's doing it a second time. And so they're going to thus plunder, not the Egyptians this time, they're going to plunder the Babylonians. And they're going to hand off things to them. Even though they, I think it's fascinating the way the Lord works it. They don't even perhaps even want to do it, but they're driven to do it by the Lord. In both cases, the Egyptians and the Babylonians and Persians as well, all enemies of God's people are called to give them their possessions and they do so. Why is that important? Because it's proving once again, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. Question as we come to application. Do you pray for the president? Or does it depend on who is the president when you pray for him? The Bible says the Lord can take the president's heart and say, okay, you're going this way. Certainly. Can he do that? Yes. Has he done that? Yes. He can do it again. The Lord can bring these things about. So we should pray for the president, no matter who is president. In conclusion... We've covered a lot of space today, and I know it was fast and furious. And from here on out, we're just going to go verse by verse, and it'll be nice and easy. But I really wanted to give you all a very big picture of what's going on with Ezra and Nehemiah. It's a return. It's a new beginning. And I think it's interesting that uh, the Lord should so grant just a new beginning in our times. Um, uh, we are here together. Some of you are new. You've just walked in the door. Some of you have been coming for a few weeks Keep coming back. Uh, we love having you. We want you to grow as we grow, as one body. But in conclusion, I would say this. You should note this. God keeps his promises. What was, uh, from the very beginning, we've got Satan lying to us. And we see that in the garden, he looks at Eve and he says, has God really said? And then he goes in a flat lie and he said, God, God, he didn't say that. And then he says, God knows that when you eat of it, you will see, you will be like him. You know, what's interesting. What Satan does is he mixes lies with truth. And what, in essence, what he does is with God is he questions three things. And folks, this is what happens. Well, I found out with me 
and maybe you'll find out with you what the Lord, sorry, what Satan causes you to question about the Lord. Number one, he questions his goodness. Is God really good? I mean, I know he's good to you, but is he good to me? Is this somehow for my good? It doesn't look like it. Secondly, questions his wisdom. This is, this is not the best this is not the best path for me to follow. I'm certain of it. This, this would not lead to my happiness. So we question his goodness. We question his wisdom. And ultimately, what we're doing is doing what? We're questioning his word. Question his word. And so you should note this. When you fall into these particular sins, Satan is not that creative. He's brilliant but he uses tried and true methods that's worked with our parents, grandparents, and all the way back to the beginning. We question God's goodness. We question his wisdom. We question his word. I would tell you this today. God keeps his word, and he is good, and he is wise. And he not only keeps his word to believers, he keeps his word to unbelievers as well. Very interesting, the Lord does not lie to unbelievers. He's certainly good. No, when he says, Isaiah 57, 21, there is no peace for the wicked, he means there is no peace. It doesn't mean they can't ever have a peaceful day, but at the end of time, at the end of the days, there is no peace for them. God refuses to give them that. He will not give them that because only peace is found in his son, Jesus Christ. We also see Matthew 25, 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The everlastingness of hell is a difficult doctrine, but it is true, and we don't run away from it. Why? Because our Father teaches it. So we don't, care. We don't say, well, Dad says this, but I believe this. No. We accept it as true, although we find it perhaps difficult. But for believers, is it not also true? Philippians 4.19, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Not every want of yours, that's taught by other churches that are not teaching the word of God. No, he takes care of our needs. And kindly, he takes care of our wants many times as well. Romans 8, 28, fill in the blank. And we know that all things work together for good. Yeah, continuing on to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. I think it's interesting whenever you see a, um, uh, oh, what do you call it? Uh, you know, some tragedy take place. The number of people that are interviewed and they, they will say things like, you know, I know that all these things are, are working for good. That's not true. That's not true for unbelievers. These things are not working for their good. They're working for their ultimate destruction. But we know these things, whatever happens in life, are working for our good. Why? to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So if you are in Christ today, whatever you're going through, and I'm not even gonna begin to think that I understand it, but they are working for your good. Why? Because God doesn't promise things he doesn't deliver. And finally, I'll leave you with this, and there's many other promises. And I will say as a side note, if you don't hold to the promises of God today, if you don't find comfort in those, folks, what are you doing? How are you even living today? There's some days I've only gotten past days because I'm holding the promises of God. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you 
will do what? Bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. If you are not in Christ today, that means if you are still somehow trusting your own self in order to get to heaven, you are what the Bible calls lost. It's not personal, it's just true. And you are condemned to hell. And so my encouragement to you today is come to the Lord. Trust him alone for your salvation. He will take care of you. He's the great shepherd of the sheep. And get this, y'all. He doesn't lie, he can't lie, and he always keeps his word. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for it. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness, that you in your kindness draw, drew us to yourself at a particular time and place. You knew exactly what you were doing. And thank you, Father, that you keep your word. How difficult would it be in life if you didn't, if you somehow went your own way, and yet, Lord, we know that you can be trusted. So help us to trust you in this today. And I pray for anybody who does not yet know your son as Savior. Grant that salvation to them today, we pray. And all God's people said, amen.